The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello, and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. This podcast episode is being released on Friday, November 25th, 2022, on this year's observed Native American Heritage Day. In 2008, the Native American Heritage Day bill was passed unanimously by both the U.S. Senate and House and was signed into law by President George W. Bush on October 8, 2008 as a way to encourage Americans of all backgrounds to honor, enhance understanding, and celebrate Native American culture. Also in 2008, the Sparks Heritage Museum held a reception for an exhibit opening of their new Native American Heritage exhibit with children's crafts, live indigenous music and dance performances, and a reception. Now, 14 years later, the Sparks Museum celebrates a revamping of this exhibit via a creative collaboration with the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Michonne Eben, who is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and Cultural Resource Manager for the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. Michonne discusses with me her passion for her heritage, her work as an activist, and the upcoming collaborative exhibit efforts between the Sparks Museum and the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. Please welcome to the podcast, Michonne Eben. Sean, thank you so much for joining me here today on the Sparks Museum podcast. Thanks, Jessica. So I wanted to start off by asking the question that I start off with all of our guests, which is what personal connection do you have with the city of Sparks and in a larger sense, the surrounding Truckee Meadows region? Well, the city of Sparks is very important to me, but I'm going to go way back because this is our ancestral area, um, the Reno and Sparks and Truckee Meadows and surrounding areas. You know, our my ancestors did not have lines, boundaries, fences, and signs that said keep out our personal property um, as, uh, pertaining to lands. So what I would like, why I'm answering in this way is that Sparks... Um, is a big area for me and my ancestors. And I do love the city of Sparks. I do love the city of Reno and the Truckee Meadows. So it reminds me a lot of my ancestors and stories going way back um, from my grandmother and my great-grandmother who lived in the Pyramid Lake area, Nixon, Nevada, Sutcliffe area, all around Pyramid Lake, and how they would travel into Reno or into the city of Sparks um, using a an old wagon with a horse so a team of horses and a wagon and so just being a little girl me not knowing that that era they would explain that to me that they would leave you know pretty in the probably in the later morning um from from Nixon and travel as far as they could and spend the night um, somewhere along the way. And then they would travel in from what is now the Pyramid Highway, come into Sparks from the north. And when they would be entering in, they would talk about how Spanish Springs was not there. If they were telling me in recent times that how Spanish Springs has grown. And, and in those areas, when we would drive along, when I would drive to Pyramid Lake with my grandmother in the car, 
she would tell me the certain places along the route, what was happening there, who lived there, or even what the animals were doing um, in certain times. In certain mountains, the eagles would be in one area because they were high cliffs. But that's all within the Sparks area. So that Sparks gives me joy and love and memory of my grandmothers and, of course, my ancestors who's been here forever. Wow. And this was, of course, you were getting these stories from your grandmother in your youth, right? And yes. so it's, it, gosh, it's changed so much even since then. Yes, it has. Wow. Now, just for a little bit of context, because we have listeners of the Sparks Museum podcast as far away as Belgium in, in terms of the wow. world. Um, and so given this broad listenership, uh, people who are listening might not be familiar with the indigenous cultures of this area. Can you speak to which cultures are represented in this region? Well, sure. So we're we're in the Great Basin. Um, and like I said earlier, there was no ba- lines, boundaries, fences, and keep out signs. Our people traveled around the whole area. Um, and so we're in the state of Nevada now. So the Great Basin is a bigger area. Uh, and Nevada just happens to be one of the states in the Great Basin. So the tribes that are in the state of Nevada are the Washoe tribe, the Shoshone tribe, the Western Shoshone tribe, and the Paiute tribes, as well as um, Southern Paiute and Northern Paiute. So those are the tribes. Um, We have 28 bands and federally recognized tribes in the state of Nevada. And two of those, two of those tribes have bands underneath them. Um, That's the Tomoke Western Shoshone tribe, they have four bands underneath them. And then the Washoe tribe also has four bands or communities underneath them as well. So this has been our area. We can research and go back thousands and thousands of years. And um, so today's times in the Reno area, in the Truckee Meadows, the only tribe in the Truckee Meadows is the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. And that's the tribe that I'm employed with. And I'm also an enrolled member of the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. Now, so as the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, can you tell us what that means and what that job entails? Sure. Well, what it means is that the TIPO, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, um, is a federal designation from the National Park Service. And um, there's probably over 170 TIPOs throughout the United States. And so, of course, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony have a TIPO, as well as I'm also the cultural resource manager. And what that entails is it's a lot. So I review I respond and I monitor any type of adverse effect to our Native American cultural resources that our ancestors left. So that what that means is I review um, federal correspondences in regards to Native American cultural resources. I review and respond closely to archaeological surveys or Native American cultural resource inventories. Um, I'm also reviewing and responding to environmental impact statements. I work a lot with a lot of federal laws pertaining to Native American cultural resources as well as our Native American ancestral remains. So those are the National Environmental Policy Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, um, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, American Indian Religious Freedom Act. It goes on. The list goes on and on and on. But that's what I do. I um, make sure that uh, federal agencies are 
also following their policies when they're consulting with um, the Reno Spark City Colony. So I'm delegated to do the consultation with federal, state, and local agencies and making sure that federal and state agencies are conducting meaningful consultation in regards to our culture um, and our ancestral's past life ways when it comes to impacts or projects within this area. Wow. How long have you been with that job, and what was your path to get to this current position? Well, I always like to say I have been a tribal historic preservation officer, and I have been a cultural resource manager all my life. <laughs> um, I grew up both in Death Valley um, on the in the Timbisha Humbolands. My mother's people are Timbisha Shoshone from Death Valley, what we call Death Valley now. But our people down there did not call um, that valley Death Valley. It is one of the driest and hottest places on earth. Um, And um, we never called it Death Valley. So I grew up down there. And um, that is surrounded. All of our little village, our little reservation was surrounded by the National Park Service. And so, of course, I would um, witness archaeologists from the Park Service coming down and talking to um, the older folks down there. And my mother would interpret the language um, with the National Park Service between the elders, and we would go visit sites. And not knowing it, um, I was visiting Native American cultural resource sites. I knew I was visiting ancestral sites, but never did I know that there was a scientific method to it, Mm -hmm. which I don't always agree to the archaeological scientific methods. So I grew up in the culture, and then I also, my father's people are from Pyramid Lake, Nevada, and so I always was around elders and old people out there at Pyramid Lake as well, and then growing up here in Reno in the city. So I think my life was always geared towards um, cultural resource management. I've been um, an activist since a child. I would go to meetings with my mother. My mother was um, was picking pinets in her own traditional ways, and the National Park Service came and ticketed her mm-hmm. for building a fire because she roasted her pinets um, like our ancestors did for time memorial and so um she fought that ticket and and won they finally just dropped the case because it was part of our culture and who we are as um as existing indigenous people and so we've all i've always had i guess growing up native american you're always on a path of of activism because you are making sure that our rights are heard our culture is first and that who we are as native people um, who we are as native people have to be taught almost every day because um, traditional schools public schools um, and society does not understand indigenous culture and that's the system has set it up that way now that's a really interesting point and What efforts does the Reno Sparks Indian Colony make to try and get out that message or maybe provide this level of education that is lacking from the school systems? So the Reno Sparks Indian Colony is is a part of this community. The um, we are closely we closely work with you know our local governments, our city governments, our state governments, and of course our federal governments. So we do have a great um, language program that teaches in the high schools, and so we're trying to keep that language alive. And um, it is a it is a second language, and so all students are welcome to join that class in some of the high schools here. Um, 
and it's also being taught at the University of Nevada, Reno. So there is curriculum out there um, showing that the languages were here. They're always, they've always been here, and they're still spoken today. So those languages are being taught in the, in the school systems today. We're also, because of um, managing cultural resources, we are at the table. We're a stakeholder at most of the tables when there's construction or there's impacts to the land here. Anytime that um, there's anything going on within um, development or a project, I know that the, the local city governments and their staff are reaching out to me or we are a part of many of the committees that are around the committees and um, programs that are around within our area. So we, we do belong to one Truckee River, which is important because the Truckee River, as you know, flows out of Lake Tahoe and then 127 miles down and ends at Pyramid Lake. So it starts where the, the Washoe people are from, and then it cruises 127 miles, and then it f- goes through Reno and then finishes at Pyramid Lake of the Paiute Nation. And so that is important that tr- the Truckee River is not only an important uh, or a significant cultural resource to the tribes, but also to the people, the residents that live here in, in Reno. So we try to be a part of the, commi- the the city of both Sparks and Reno in several different aspects. If it's joining committees, being stakeholders at the tables, we're educating them about our culture. We're just started to do the Truckee med- we're part of the Truckee Meadows Regional Planning Committee that's just currently taking place. And um, I, I did a big educational piece with them about our some of the chapters we're going to have in that planning document was titled Paleontology, and that's where they put the archaeological um, and then the tribal lands. And, and I, it was really important to educate their staff that this is what has happened. We're always put in the natural history area in the museums um, were always thought of as you know a, um, a past we're prehistoric well that's not true we we have a history we definitely had a history before any scientist put that word on us and um, and so it really made the staff they took it really great like we never thought of it and that's what I was talking about there's a system that was put in place to make sure to show that native people are in the past and keep us in the past and and so that's really important to educate um you know our community members that we're here we're still here we're part of progress so we're a part of the local governments we're part of educating um and i i do go to the university of nevada reno i present um in the anthropology classes and the archaeology classes of who we are, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, um, our ancestral past, who we are today, and our culture going forward. So um, we're always out there trying to do our best to um, to educate the community from the small children um, into, into, the, into the elders in this community. It's such a great community. And um, we just recently held a big event um, out at Idlewild Park, an important um, 
site for us and an important park for us. And um, we had a DJ Classic Roots who did some house party music, techno music that he incorporated Native American sounds and drumming and music with that. And we had three to 400 people attend that event. Um, we had Native vendors. And so we're, we're showing the community who we are. And um, we're part of Art Town. I sit on the Art Town board for the city with the city of Reno. And Art Town's a great event to get um, to showcase our, our living culture and how we incorporate our traditions and culture into today's times. So we're busy out there. We're doing our best. We can't catch everybody, but we do our best to share our culture. Speaking of that, sharing your culture and being very busy, the Sparks Museum recently received a grant to redevelop our Native American portion of our gallery, which I feel in many ways was, as you described, uh, very archaic and (laughs) in the past as what most traditional museums would would categorize along with the natural history side of things. Uh, you graciously agreed to partner with the Sparks Museum to help redesign what otherwise was a really limited representation of indigenous cultures of this area. So what do you hope that this exhibit will provide the community? And what do you hope that visitors to the museum will take away after having seen what we did with the case? Yeah, it's really great um, collaborating with um, the Spark the Sparks Heritage Museum. I'm excited about that. Um, and yes, the 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 little past um, exhibit was very old, and they you know I'm sure the people working on it were doing the best that they could. And I think that's probably with most museums because you think of native people as artifacts or what I talked about natural the natural history category, um, and and putting us in as a a relic of the past. And so it's very important today um, that we decolonize museums strategies and and exhibit of what how they're portraying Native people. And I think it's very important that, um, well, first of all, it was really important that the Sparks Heritage Museum, Miss Christine Johnson, came and said, hey, you know, we would like to work with you on an exhibit. Why don't you come check out the new ex- the exhibit, the current exhibit, and which we did. And so talking um, with Miss Johnson about the project going forward, I wanted to make sure that we were told in the light of we are still here today we want to show like yes we we we're indigenous people that this is where we come from we have many stories we have many many oral histories of this great basin of Truckee Meadows and of Sparks and that it was important to showcase not only those oral histories and those stories but showcase us who we are today and to try to highlight all the bands um, and all the tribes of the state of Nevada our traditional our traditional area names, um, our traditional tribal names. That was real. That w- that was what was really important. And then to showcase when people leave, what do you want people, the visitors and the tourists, to understand when they leave a museum, when they leave a cultural center, that when they leave, they know that there's a rich Native American indigenous heritage where they just where they're visiting, but they also know that we're still here. We're not a relic, and we're not an artifact. 
fact and that um, when they leave, they know that we drive cars, we wear clothes, maybe from Target, um, and that we're educated. We are involved um, currently in the what is happening within the local government. And then also that um, we have a rich heritage. We've always had it, and we carry that on today. I think those are the most um, important things to highlight. And then also, you know, there's been a very hard history back there of um, excavations taking place um, back in the... Well, ever since the the Europeans came to this new country, the, um, what they call the new country, um, you know, they began to loot and take Native American um, artifacts and take our take our livelihood. And when they did that, and when they were um, looting or excavating for artifacts, because it was, I guess, it was a curiosity. I'm not sure they were. It was excited to to find an arrowhead or a um, a projectile point. It was ex it's exciting for people to find that. But they have to realize too that back in those days when they were taking and removing and sometimes looting, um, they were forgetting that there was a whole culture attached to those those um, those living those those living items and to us they're very important and that um, when the, when that was taking place they were telling native people you have no place in this society so they were sending our people off to boarding schools or you know they were trying to annihilate us there's a lot of massacres that happened in the Great Basin here in the state of Nevada that was sanctioned by the Calvary um, um, back in the early 1860s um, and several I mean we could probably name about 50 of them that took place because we were no longer um, looked at as human beings. We were, but our artifacts were something of to glorify and to keep. So it, it, it's kind of astonishing how I how I see and and what I what I've been taught and what I know that our artifacts were highly valued, but us as human beings were not, and so we were not highly valued, but our items were, and that kind of makes people think like, what's going on? And so people can still loot and and take our items, and they're sold on the black market and. That's why we have to have these laws to protect them, and and that's what I um, and that's what we're about as cultural resource managers. That we're trying to protect our culture and make sure that they're not um, destroyed or are demolished. Um, um, and if they are, because of federal projects or any projects, that we have a say so in that destruction, if needed. So, when presented in that context, it feels as though these individuals were preserving those items as trophies almost, which is horrifying to think about. Now, today I know that there's a lot of people that perhaps are very well-meaning, just wanting to yeah. explore the area and say that, for instance, um, someone is wandering along, maybe doing a little bit of excavation on their own, amateur excavation, and they come across an arrowhead or some other item like that. What would you uh, recommend that they do? Well, first, I would recommend um, if they are not an archaeologist um, and they're, um, you know, amateur archaeologists, I think um, um, is, is probably not a good term to use. But um, I think that it really depends. Now, you have to there's laws that protect private property state lands or state property, and then, of course, federal lands. Now, not anybody can go out and just start digging and excavating and finding um, Native American cultural resources. 
on federal lands, you cannot do that without a permit. And that's a, and that's a process that you have to go through. Not anybody can just get a permit and do that. Now, um, state lands, that too is, um, um, I, I, I just want to say that nobody without a permit should be out there excavating um, and, and trying and looting and looking for things because pretty much you're looting and you're destroying um, Native American culture. Now, there are some people out there that um, if they do find something and they're just walking along and finding without digging, um, remember, be, con- be conscious of where you're at, what kind of land you're on. And, um, and if you do find something, I would just call the local tribe and let them know. That's excellent. And I think it's really important for people to hear because we are located in such a area that was so rich with indigenous culture that that sort of thing can happen and people need to know what the right procedure is. Sure. And speaking of decolonization of museum spaces, you yourself are developing a project within the Reno Sparks Indian Colony office building. Would you like to give people a little bit of a sneak peek as to what you're developing over in your offices, yes, we have a um, a small office, and actually, my office is on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, they did call it the Matron Station, but that is now the Cultural Resource Management Office, as well as the Tribal Historic Preservation Office. And we do have an area for a small exhibit and um, really nice exhibit cases. So, in the past, we have had several exhibits those exhibits have been to honor our military um our um all the wars so we had a great military exhibit we have had a basket exhibit those are baskets we've displayed were um baskets from our ancestors they were baskets that were repatriated um back from museums or from um private collectors they were um baskets that were donated, but they were all um, Great Basin baskets. They were Paiute, Washoe, and Shoshone baskets. So that was a great one. And um, we've also had exhibits where we've honored our centenarians who were great oral historians and also who um, were great artisans and did some really great artwork. So this coming fall... 2022, we are hosting, well, co-hosting, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony is co-hosting the Western Mining Action Network um, Annual Conference. And this is an international um, conference that happens throughout um, the countries. And this year they're having it in, um, in Reno. So we're co-hosting it. And they what Western Mining Action Network is about is they just doing their best to educate communities that are affected by mining. Um, and so they're, um, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, we're putting on a small exhibit um, about mining and its effects in um, in in our areas of Nevada. And um, we know that mining's important and it is a business um, it, here in Nevada and it always has been. We just want to show um, uh, another side of it through the Reno Sparks and Colony's eyes, seeing that, you know, the um, about um, 
you know, the 1872 federal mining law and what that entails and how today, 2022, that same 1872 mining law um, is still in effect and that in 2022, we still refer back to that 1872 mining law. So we just want to showcase, um, you know, the effects um, and, and what mining could possibly do to the land, um, to the people, um, as well as everything that's um, within the land. So... That's what we're doing. It's um, it's going to be a positive exhibit. It's just it's going to be educational, and it's really about um, decolonizing the way we think about how um, lands lands and everything within the lands are affected by extractive corporations. Um, in any way we can, in a positive way. So it'll be educational, um, and nothing that should not be. Um, unaware of any people coming in and we will have that um, exhibit open to the community Um, and we are working in collaboration with the University of Nevada Reno um, as well as the Sparks Heritage Museum so I think it'll be a great exhibit it'll be a small exhibit but it'll be outstanding. I feel that the two exhibits that are being developed right now are in many ways complementary of each other. They're a celebration of culture, but in different ways. Yeah. And I'm excited to see what comes of these two exhibits going up at relatively the same time. Now, you spoke a little bit about uh, your historic offices, and I would love to know more about that. Um, How long has the Reno Sparks Indian Colony offices been at its current location? And can you tell us a little bit more about that historic building? So the Field Matron Program was instituted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, in the late 1890s, and um, or the early 1890s. And in 1922, the Red Cross... um, um, helped collab well collaborated with the BIA and to set up these field matron stations in communities um, that were less fortunate. So these matron stations provided um, nursing amenities. They provided um, medical attention, um, and a nurse was lived in these places for those communities to come and visit and utilize the services. Because back in the early eighteen 18- um, 90s, you know, we didn't have access to any of what I just mentioned. And so um, this, our field um, station was set up in 1926. Um, um, and it started in the early 1900s, um, the city of Reno, um, as well as the BIA was trying to set something up for the Reno Sparks Indian Colony because there was natives living in the Reno and Sparks area. And so in 1926, our building was um, built and um, that became the field matron station. And um, today our offices are in this building. I really love this building. It has a lot of history and a lot of memories. Um, and people, when they come to visit us, especially the local um, Reno Sparks Indian Colony members, they have a lot of stories about it. Some some of the elders remember coming and getting their spoonful of, I guess it was the cod liver that the nurse used to give out. I'm not sure what Ooh. they gave out. Um, <laughs> that was a thing back in the <laughs> early 1900s, I guess. Yikes. And then... Um, 
you know, people would come and, and to get bandages or if they were coughing or sick, um, then the nurse was there on site. And so there was those type of stories. Other type of stories were, um, after the field, after the, um, the matron station was closed down, they used it for offices and other, uh, other things taken place there. But our building is quite unique because it's on the national register for the criterion, um, a, because of the, special event it was a united states historical event meaning the matron station how it was set up because they were set up all over the country not just here so it's kind of a historical um topic in in that manner it's also can be um um on the register on the national register of historic places um for its uh for you call it criterion c which is the um, the integrity of the building and the building is a um, because of the construction of the building and why I'm bringing that in is because our building is um, it's a it's a type of has its type of rocks or masonry that's on the outside of it and that is um, we call it a sturt I mean it is the architectural type is called the Stuart vernacular, and it's called it's called the Stuart vernacular because the building is identifiable as a product of the Stuart Indian School, oh, wow. the boarding school that is in Carson City. Um, there was a the school had a stones mason a stone mason apprentice program, and uh, with the stylistic hand of um, Frederick Snyder, mm-hmm. and and the craftsmanship of these brothers and these um, students would would build these would build these buildings and um, so they call it the architecture was the Stuart vernacular, so it is the oldest building associated with the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. We just had a day. Um, we just were kind of taking a look at replacing the windows and the doors and of course because it's on the national register we have to do it according to secretary interior standards by doing that we're trying to keep the building um, as closely as we can to when it was built in 1926 so um, we love the building the building's great we have just recent well within the last five years found out that it's actually one of the floor plans and one of the exact buildings that at, is at Stuart um, Indian School. They actually call it building number 11. Mm-hmm. And so we have building number 11 also at the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. So, um, yeah, we love our building. Um, like I said, it's one of the oldest buildings associated with the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. And that is where the Cultural Resource Management and the Tribal Historic Preservation Office is today. Can people visit that office? Yeah, we have a current exhibit going on right now, and it's open now. Um, you just have to look us up, Reno Sparks Indian Colony Cultural Resource Program, our Reno Sparks Indian Colony Tribal Historic Preservation Office on rsic.org. Excellent. And, of course, along with this exhibit that just opened, I wanted to ask, is there any other projects that the um, RSIC is working on right now or any Mm -hmm. other projects that you're excited about? Yeah, you know, we... um we just did a tour of the Spaghetti Bowl Express. It's one project, one of the projects that um, we worked on. We are a cooperating agency with Federal Highways Administration and, of course, NDOT, Nevada Department of Transportation, because they are expanding and doing construction on the main 
freeway that goes right through Reno, and that is next to the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, mm-hmm. our downtown area, um, downtown Reno and Sparks. And so with with that, because of them moving closer, part of the mitigation was um, placing and putting up cultural elements. And so we have just... Um, started well it has taken at least three years um the tri-basin cultural committee who is an advisory committee to myself to our program the cultural resource program and the tribal historic preservation office we worked with NDOT landscape aesthetics and um and consultants and so we have a lot of cultural elements that are going to be placed along the freeway we will have um picked um, six baskets along the the sound wall. There are two Paiute baskets, two Washoe baskets, and two Shoshone baskets. We are also going to be having storyboards of our some of our creation stories from here of the Great Basin. We're going to have animals placed throughout some of the areas because the animals in our oral histories were here first. Um, they're important, um, and they brought a lot of humanistic characteristics to the living people and so we always honor them um, we will be using different types of symbols um, that represent great meanings to the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, as well as our contemporary traditions. Um, some powwow dancers will have out, and we'll also be having a large bronze statue. And so those will be placed throughout um, the Spaghetti Bowl area on Mill Street, as well as 2nd Street, that's downtown, well, here in the Reno Sparks area next to the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. So we work on a lot of projects throughout the whole area. Those are some of the big main things. You can always follow us on um, our Facebook page, Reno, Fa- Reno Sparks City Colony Facebook. You'll see a lot of events that are happening or getting information out, what's happening around with us within our community. Speaking of our community, we do have a large powwow that takes place where people come from all over Canada and America. Um, it is called Numaga Days. We hold that big powwow during Labor Day weekend, which is usually um, the beginning of September, the three-day holiday. And so we usually have a powwow Friday, all day Saturday, Saturday evening, and Sunday to Sunday afternoon. And that's exciting because we also have a lot of vendors um, that are selling their authentic Native American um, artwork. And so those are great events to come to. So you just have to keep an eye out on our Facebook you know, Sparks Indian Colony Facebook. So a lot of projects we're working on. And speaking of our lands, that powwow is held out in Hungry Valley. That's one of our second communities. Here in the Reno Sparks um, area, we have 28 acres um, by Mill Street and East 2nd Street. We have about maybe 20 acres throughout Sparks and Reno area. That's where our economic development projects are. And then we have over 15,000 acres in, in an area called, we call Hungry Valley. It's above Spanish Springs um, going north out of Reno, about 20 miles. And that's where a, lar- a larger community members live and our homes are and um and a lot of um, community facilities out there as well that's amazing well thank you so much for being a guest today and before we go i wanted to end on the big three questions these are questions that i ask each one of our guests so you kind of spoke to it right at the start of the podcast but i'm interested in what sparks you about sparks what do you believe makes it a unique place to live work or even visit 
Well, I don't know if I could say this on a podcast, but ever since I was a little kid, yes, at the beginning, I did talk about where Sparks is so important. But I have to tell this joke because I heard it as a little kid and I heard it from an old, old elder. He said, you know, Michon, you know I, well, how I can tell Reno is so close to hell. And I was thinking, what? What? He goes, because you could see sparks. <laughs> and I just I don't tell that joke a lot because I was a kid when I heard it. But it made me laugh as a kid. But then it really made me have to think around. Um, but, you know, that's just that's just a little funny joke that some little grandpa is telling telling you. Um, but what sparks me about Sparks is that the Reno Sparks Indian Colony were we're a part of this um, this place we call the Truckee Meadows. We're car- we're a part of Reno and we're a part of Sparks. Um, what really sparks me too, though, and when I hear Sparks today, I would say in the last ten years. Um, and working with um, the Sparks Heritage Museum, not really doing a whole lot, but um, working with um, a couple of the gentlemen, um, older gentlemen that had worked there, had brought over some old postcards. And one of those postcards from the Sparks Heritage Museum was a Native American woman uh, in the turn of the century getting on a, um, it was a picture of a Native American woman getting on her, getting on the, railways getting on uh one of the rail car cars and she had her baby cradle board strapped to her back and i thought it, it was so cool to see that tradition that you know that uh, an ancestor was jumping into a rail cart and um, she had her baby stra- her cradle board strapped to her back um and i just I'm just that just made me proud. I always so when um, people talk about sparks, I don't know for some reason that is sparked in my mind. Wow. I love that picture. In fact, I've asked Miss Christine Johnson to find that picture for me. Oh, excellent! I hope we can locate yeah, it. Yeah. Do you have a favorite story or moment from Sparks's history? And this could either be a significant moment that you remember or a personal memory of an event or space in this area. Well, I have a lot, um, you know, of course, um, of course, one of them is, you know, all the events that we hold today um, as the Reno Sparks Inn and Colony. Um, I, you know, I just told the story the other day that, you know, we built this new, um, new road, the Veterans um, Parkway Highway um, right here in Sparks and and um, and the University of Nevada Reno has one of their farms in Sparks even though University of Nevada Reno is located in the Reno area um, and one of their farms is here in Sparks and I remember a little girl traveling with my grandma and I would sit in the back and she always had those big old giant boat cars <laughs> and I would say this was in the late 70s and she still drove and um, and we were driving along, and it was it must have been on McCarran. It had to be McCarran because there was no Veterans Parkway. But she had said, "And you see that place over there, Michonne?" And I'm sitting in the back, and I sat up and looked, and all I saw was like uh, agricultural land. There was nothing on it, just a farm. And and I said, "Yeah." And she said, "Well, that's where your ancestors used to live, and um, that's where the old people used to live." And you know, as a kid, you're like, "Oh, cool." And, you know, you kind of shrug your shoulder and you lean back. But today that has a lot of meaning to me. So that's um, one of the 
one of the one of the places that sparks me is um, the un the UNR's farmlands right there, wow. and of course the Truckee River that's right next to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now museums, as we've established, can be very controversial. Yeah. Given your experience with tribal communities and working with other museums, what do you think should or should not be featured in museums? Mm-hmm. Um, and is there Anything personally that you own or know of that you would ultimately like to see in a museum one day? Yeah, you know, I think uh, museums are doing their best to change their ways. Just here in our region, I mean, um, well, Carson City definitely has, well, of course, they have their um, their Native American exhibit, the Nevada State Museum, and also a new um, museum that's gone up, our cultural center, is the Stuart Indian School, the boarding school cultural center. Um, th- that's a great cultural center right now, and they're really trying to um, really showcase the history of the boarding school, you know, um, everything that took place there and and all the items. So one thing that I do have, both my mother and father, I had, and my grandmother and my great-grandmother and uncles, they've all gone to Stuart Indian School, um, probably in the early, the earliest was probably 1900, my great-grandmother went there, then in probably 1920, my, my, um, her daughter, my grandmother went there. And then, of course, and then in the 1930s, both my mother and father went there. That's how they met. And um, I have my mother's scrapbook from the probably she started her scrapbook in 1940 on to she graduated in 1953 54 around there maybe even 1956 I can't recall but I have her scrapbook and it's the neatest scrapbook of all their dance tickets bus tickets grades love letters um her corsages playwrights um their dance it's it's just the neatest um it's a neatest artifact and it's all falling apart and i'm just holding on to it but i want to donate that to um to the stuart indian boarding school cultural center and i and as for the other museums i think that um you know, some of them have a long way to go, but some of them don't. They're all learning, and you have a lot of young people coming up that are taking museum studies, learning about museum, reading the books about decolonizing museums. The main point that needs to happen in museums and cultural centers that are not run by indigenous people, that we need to show the community, what I talked about earlier, is that when tourists and visitors leave that museum, that they don't leave thinking that Native Americans Americans are of the past and they're gone and they're no longer here. You have to show that we are here. We live in houses. We drive cars. We go to school. We run programs. We're educated. We're a sovereign nation. That's what's important um, when people, visitors leave a museum. And one thing that I would really like maybe the museums to teach and getting our traditional public schools to teach is what sovereignty is. What tribal nations are about and why they have sovereignty and what that sovereignty means because I work um, I work with a lot of people 
from federal to state agencies, like I talked about, and um, and and it's they know what sovereignty means, but do, do they really know what that means? That as a sovereign nation, we're a state within a state, and that we need to be respected as so. And so maybe some museums could start thinking about um, teaching about sovereignty and and what sovereignty means, and and why tribal people today have that, why we have tribal governments, and who we are as tribal governments here in the United States. Well, that is a perfect and very powerful note to end on. I want to thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. Well, Jessica, I had lots of fun. You made me think, um, but I appreciate um, you putting this out there and, and doing these podcasts. You're doing great work. Thank you. Thank you. Sparks Museum Podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own Antspace Coworking Entrepreneurial Hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time.